electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight, the wrath of the SEC, the agency turning the screws on Coinbase and Binance, are all bets off on the future of crypto. Holy cow! Beef prices continue to sizzle. Can restaurants and consumers swallow it? Billionaire Tillman Fertitta will join us live. Did the U.S. know about Ukraine's plot to bomb Russia's Nord Stream pipeline? The report every investor needs to hear. Plus, Boeing hitting rough air yet again. A new defect discovered with one of its biggest and most important planes. We'll get the breaking news. And legal marijuana sales are surging. So why isn't anything but the highlight for the cannabis stocks? We'll head live to Las Vegas for some answers. All that and much more over the hour. Belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. As always, we're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up on Last Call, the shocking twist in the world of professional sports. The PGA Tour is merging with Saudi Arabia-backed rival Liv Golf. The two sides signing a deal that will combine the PGA and Liv's commercial business and rights into a new company. The agreement also includes the European PGA Tour. And the controlling stake in the new company will be owned by Saudi Arabia's investment fund. In other words, Saudi Arabia now effectively owns professional golf globally. Now, here's the PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Moynihan talking about the deal with our David Faber. We've recognized that together we can have a far greater impact on this game than we can working apart. And I give Yasser great credit for coming to the, t- coming to the table, coming to the discussions with an open heart and an open mind. We did the same, and the game of golf is better for what we've done here today. But not too long ago, Moynihan was singing a remarkably different tune. Here's a video of him speaking with CBS's Jim Nance just last year. I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that there are significant implications. And as it relates to the families of 9-11, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? So is this the ultimate hypocrisy? Shaming players for going to live golf and then taking their money. Let's bring in NBC Sports and Golf Channel broadcaster Jimmy Roberts, host of Barstool's foreplay golf podcast, Sam Boisean, better known as Riggs, of course, and Sports Corp founder and CEO Mark Gannis. Thank you for joining Last Call. Jimmy, I mean, listen, the cries of hypocrisy are loud. They say it's, you know, on the, on the Twitter we would call, I'm just here for the ratio. Is this a bad look for Moynihan and the PGA? Listen, I mean, how often, Brian, have we heard politicians say one thing in the primary season and another thing in the general election season? 
But that aside, let me let me just correct something that was mentioned earlier. Saudi Arabia does not own this venture and the two tours have not merged. I think merger is a convenient term that's been applied to this agreement. I'm not taking one side or the other, but I just want to make sure that people understand what the facts are. The facts are that the PGA Tour, the European Tour, and LIV made an agreement to create an independent and separate enterprise that will function separate from the PGA Tour and LIV is a minority owner of that enterprise. But the controlling stake is the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. Yeah, in their minority stake. I thought the con- maybe I had it wrong. If I have it wrong, I apologize, Riggs. I, I mean, then, then I guess well, we have look, no story I, here. Let me jump in Let's here real quick. I'm a big segment. fan of, of Jimmy, been a big fan for a very long time. I think it's undoubtedly clear for a lot of folks paying attention right now, especially with the unpopularity of the commissioner of the PGA Tour, Jay Monaghan, right now, that Yasser Al-Ramayan is going to be the most powerful person in the world of golf right now. Um, That's the way things have moved. He is going to be the chairman of this new venture. They haven't named it yet. Uh, And I think that a lot of people in the world of golf are very concerned about that fact. Now, by all accounts, he loves golf. Yasser's obsessed with it. He's been obsessed with it. He's about a 12 handicap. And if he's got $620 billion at his disposal, he could do great things for the world of golf. But we all know the background. We all understand the issues with Saudi Arabia. He's the right-hand man of MBS. That comes with a lot of scary things, as Phil Mickelson himself said. So the future, how this all plays out, it's unclear. Anybody who acts like they know, I think, is overstepping. But at this point, it's a very clear pathway that Yasser Al-Ramayan, I think, will be the most powerful person in golf. And that's very new that somebody from Saudi Arabia would be the most powerful person in golf. Yeah, Mark. So to Jimmy's point and to Riggs's point, I mean, how do we read this? Did did, did we get it wrong? I mean, I, I, I'm still a little bit torn because as I understand it, and maybe I am wrong, he's controlling it. The investment fund is the primary backer of it. And they sat together with David Faber today and, and talked about it. So what am I missing it's, here? It's, it's, actually, it's actually even different than what, it's still confusing because the yeah, Here's the third view. <laughs> but what it is, is there are two entities. One is gonna control the competition. One is gonna control the commercial rights. The competition is still gonna remain the US nonprofit entity, the PGA. Uh, it's a little bit like, like uh, Formula One where they have the FIA, which controls the competitions, the rules, uh, that kind of thing. And then you've got the commercial enterprise that is controlled by Liberty. So it's, it's a little different than what's been discussed yeah. here. But the end result of this is that it's a resolution. What was going on was, was sucking the life out of professional golf. All of the resources were being, were being thrown into the, uh, the, the litigation and the, and the governmental app, uh, issues that were going on. They needed to find yeah. a resolution where they could come together and they could re-energize golf and move it forward. And that's what the hope is. From if, if you're a car racing fan like, like I am, and I don't know if you guys are or not, but you might remember 20 years ago, IndyCar broke up. It was called CART at the time. The Indy Racing League went here. IndyCar went over there. Both sides were weak. It was one plus one equals, you know, one half in that situation. Regardless of the actual details here, Jimmy, on the ownership, I think the point is there are people out there that are saying, listen, if Moynihan hadn't gone out and basically tried to shame players for going over to live golf, 
it wouldn't look as bad and the outcries as they are today probably wouldn't exist. Is that a fair point? Listen, I don't think, Brian, there's any doubt about the fact that that's certainly a fair point. Uh, But there's so much inconsistency all over this issue. Let me point out one of them, okay? And this, I think, was brought to light by Lee Westwood, who's now a live player. He mentioned this in a tweet over the last month, and I think Riggs may remember this. He said that he's a little confused because he's being told that um, the tour that he used to belong to, which was the European tour, the DP tour, for years had a tournament in Saudi Arabia that they wanted them to, um, you know, to go to and be a member of. So I think that there's a lot of people trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Riggs, I'll tell you this much, okay? Forget about the ownership. If I'm a player who did not go to live, right? Average, now these are pros, so an average pro getting paid a lot of money, tons of money, turning it down because of what my own tour was saying, fear of not being able to play in U.S. majors, and maybe leaving tens of millions on the table. Now I see this deal. I, I don't know. You're, look at the, we're showing some of the pay for the, Phil Mickelson is probably a billionaire now. If you're one of the guys that didn't go to live, I got to imagine you are out of your mind or probably deep in your cups at this point tonight. Yeah, look, hypocrisy is the key word that's being taken away from today. If you look at Hideki Matsuyama, rumors are he turned down $300 million uh, to go to live. And now he looks a year later, eight months later, whatever it is. And the guys that took 200 million, Phil Mickelson took 175 million or so, Dustin Johnson, they're going to be in the same position that he is. They're going to be playing in the same tournaments. They're going to be playing for the same entity, whatever that entity is. And so those players are obviously going to be incredibly frustrated and 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 all of that. But look, for the golf fan at this point, you just led your primetime show with us talking about golf on a Tuesday when it's the RBC Canadian Open. For the Great last point. year, the ratings Absolutely. in a lot of the bigger events, the ratings at the RBC Heritage the week after the Masters were very, very high, significantly <laughs> higher than before. So the interest in the world of golf right now is enormous. Now, putting, again, a lot of those reins, yeah. a lot of the responsibility into the hands um, of someone who's really untested for the golf world. Um, and I know we mentioned there's a, the competitions and the commercial money talks, baby, and commercial is going to win out over who's making the competition well, uh, Rick, decisions, in my opinion. Rick, so I'm, now a, that we're I'm, in a, position, I'm a big fan of Barstool. Now you're on CNBC. And I'll tell you what, I just have a feeling we might have a high golfing demographic on this network, if you catch what I'm saying, <laughs> which is why we're leading with the story tonight. Joe Kernan, if you're out there watching, by the way. Hi, Joe. We should have gotten you right. on for this. Uh, Mark, is there, do you think there's a chance this deal gets blocked? Small chance that it gets but it's not z- but, but it's not zero it's not zero that that is correct the players are being briefed on the deal right now uh, they're they're the euro tour players have to approve it uh as well these are players controlled associations so it is possible but it's a very small chance could it get tweaked that's where i think you could see some adjustments because this is just a framework deal there's a lot of, of detail to be put in this, a lot of operational matters to be put. So this is the time where the players, if they choose to, could get heavily involved in the way this broad framework actually will come, yeah. come uh, to being. Jimmy, I'm, I'm a terrible golfer. I don't watch a lot of golf. I'm a Jimmy Roberts fan, by the way. I understand the Masters. I turned on Live Golf, saw the team format, the names. I, I didn't really understand how it, mm-hmm. how it worked, right? They were trying to kind of make it a little more exciting. Assuming this does go through, do you have any insight on whether or not the live 
relationship will live on? Will that style of play have some form in this newly created? Could we see teams at the U.S. Open? Oh, never. Look, never at the U.S. Open. But let me just say this. Anybody who tells you they know what lies ahead in terms of what this new entity, what shape it will take, they're lying. You know, nobody knows at this point. I've talked to a lot of people today, a lot of people who are deeply involved, and I honestly believe that this is nothing more than a first step. Riggs is absolutely right. It's about the money. There's going to be a tremendous infusion of money into the PGA Tour, and that in itself is a reason why some players who may not necessarily have Mm. wanted to listen to this will be all ears. Um, But I also think that the PGA Tour will retain governance over all of its competition. You know, what's going to be in the future? I've got some thoughts about what might happen, but they're just my thoughts. Yeah, but so, and but I think that, everybody so else it, in the same boat. Quickly, quickly, Riggs. So it could be a situation where we have a couple of live-like tournaments in an otherwise, quote, normal PGA format, mostly. Who knows? Yeah, look, to, to, Jimmy's, to Jimmy's point, I mean, this. The, I think three people in the world that are confirmed knew about all of this as of this morning. Um, the players, it's a, it's a, it's a player-driven organization, the PGA Tour, and none of the players knew. And so, to his point, uh, anybody acting like they know, they don't have yeah. a clue. I'd be very surprised if Liv just abandoned or, or you know, the PIF, who was going to have, obviously, a, a, a massive financial stake and uh, make a capital investment into this whole thing. Does it continue the team aspect at some point? They alluded to the fact that they will. We love team golf. We love team Mm. sports. Us as golf fans, the Ryder cup, the president's cup is excited as we get for any golf all year long. So we kind of like the idea that they're playing with it. It hasn't worked. The live broadcast doesn't stick. It doesn't get traction. You try to tune in. There's different colors. You don't know what the hell is going on. I don't know. know, You're right. I know. I actually, you just (laughs) described me. Right, turning it on, I have no idea what's going on. But I think the Saudis learned the most important lesson from the movie Caddyshack, guys. Be the ball. Jimmy Roberts, Riggs, Mark Gannis, really appreciate it, guys. You're right, a new record leading the CNBC show with golf. All right. Meantime, here's what, speaking, it's all about money. Here's what happened to your money today. Not a lot, but it's enough to make a little bit of a milestone. All the major averages ticked higher, and with those moves, the S&P 500 ticked up to the close at its highest level of the year, though keep in mind, so much of that gain centered around just a couple of massive stocks, just kind of something to tuck away in the back of your head. Looking at today's studs and duds, Comerica leading the S&P 500 up more than 7%. Lumen up, the biggest dud, down only though, about 3.5%. Quick look at the futures again, thinly traded, but they are a little bit in degree. All right, up next, can Boeing catch a break. A new defect is uncovered on one of its biggest and most important jets, the breaking developments with Phil LeBeau next. Plus, the SEC laying a bit of a smackdown on both Coinbase and Binance is a knockout blow for crypto. The SEC's ultimate goal, Mike Novogratz, here, live. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. 
Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you might be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, if you live in the Northeast, you may want to think twice about stepping outside right now. That is a live look of Manhattan from the top of 30 Rock. Those are not clouds. That is not the marine layer. That is courtesy of huge volumes of smoke drifting south from massive wildfires in Canada. The Empire State Building's Twitter account having a little fun with the rather eerie conditions writing, I've had enough of this smoke. There are air quality alerts across many parts of New England, New York, and New Jersey, even Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Currently, 413 active wildfires are burning in Canada. Wow. Meantime, there is a significant update to the disruptions hitting key ports along the West Coast. Union Pacific Railroad is now halting rail shipments from Denver to L.A. ports. The move designed to help preserve key shipments of U.S. food and agricultural exports it's all amid an ongoing labor dispute over wages. Union workers are not arriving at the labor halls as well. Negotiations between the ILWU, Longshoremen Union, and Pacific Maritime Association are ongoing. All right, now to some breaking developments on Boeing. There appears to be a new defect on one of its biggest jets. Phil LeBeau joining us now with more. Phil. Brian, we're talking about the 787 Dreamliner and an announcement from Boeing this afternoon that it may be slowing down deliveries and likely will slow them down, at least in the near term. Here is the issue. There is a fitting on the horizontal stabilizer of the aircraft that may be out of conformance, may not meet specifications. However, it's important to point out this is not a flight safety issue. So the Dreamliners that are in service, they continue to fly. Near-term deliveries, as I mentioned, however, they are likely to be delayed. They've got about 90 Dreamliners that are built and are in inventory waiting to be delivered. They've got to inspect all of these. And if there is an issue with this fitting in question, it's going to take them a couple of weeks to fix it. We should point out as you take a look at shares of Boeing that they have not changed their guidance for deliveries for 2023 when it comes to the Dreamliner. They're still expecting to deliver between 70 and 80. But Brian, as you look at this chart here, I've had a number of people say to me, why isn't Boeing moving higher? We've had these massive orders over the last several months. Massive orders. Some of the biggest ever in the history of commercial aviation that have been placed. Shouldn't that be giving the shares a lift? This is the reason they're not moving higher. Because people are still questioning whether they can ramp production and keep it ramped without having to have issues like this pop up from time to time. So this is another headache for Boeing and one that investors are going to look at and they're going to say, okay. Let's see if they can stick to this guidance and, and this delivery plan for the Dreamliners this year. We have any sense of a timeline? We don't. They've got about 90, and they're going to inspect them. And then if they need to do any type of a rework, it'll take a couple of weeks before they can deliver it. They think that they can you know, work this out through the end of the year in terms of their deliveries of delivering between 70 and 80. But that's a you know, that's the big question that's out there right now. We've heard this from Boeing before in the past when they've said we've got an issue. We can we're confident we can overcome it. Eventually they do. Near term, it's going to be bumpy. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Watching Boeing tomorrow. 
All right, still ahead here on Last Call, the SEC's biggest blow yet against crypto and its explosive losses against Coinbase and Binance. Could those just be the start of an SEC on the crypto warpath? Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, welcome back. The crypto world feeling the wrath of the SEC like never before. The agency is now suing Coinbase. It alleges that the crypto exchange is operating as an unregistered securities broker and that it has, quote, failed to register the offer and sale of crypto assets staking as a service program, whatever that means. According to Barclays, Coinbase could face a penalty of as much as $6 billion. The news hammering that stock as well, closing down 10% today. This closely follows yesterday's move that we talked about last night of the SEC charging Binance and its founder with 13 different securities violations. And now, breaking after hours, the SEC is upping the ante even more. It is asking a federal court to impose a temporary restraining order to freeze Binance's U.S. assets. Binance is calling the move, quote, unwarranted. SEC Chair Gary Gensler stopped by Squawk on the street this morning to make his case on both lawsuits. The whole business model is built on non-compliance with the U.S. securities laws. And we're asking them to come into compliance and they're going a bit of catch us if you can. We don't need more uh, digital currency. We already have digital currency. It's called the U.S. dollar. It's called the euro. It's called the yen. They're all digital right now. You become the destination of choice if you build trust. The crypto markets are undermining that trust. And I would say this, it undermines our overall capital markets. Now, in response to the SEC lawsuit, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong tweeting this, quote, instead of publishing a clear rulebook, the SEC has taken a regulation by enforcement approach that is harming America. So if we need to avail ourselves of the courts to get clarity, so be it. Now, according to a 2022 NBC News poll, one in five Americans have invested in, traded in, or used crypto. So what does this all mean for you and crypto? And why is the SEC suddenly now so seemingly laser-focused? Joining us now is Tanea McKeel, CNBC crypto markets and investment reporter, and Perianne Boring, founder and CEO of Digital Chamber. Perianne, what's your take? I mean, it's like SEC gone wild. Yeah, I mean, this this is politically driven. I am a firm believer that crypto is not going away. This is about innovation. It's about technological progress. And at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, is what's right for Americans holding back innovation? And I don't think so. This is a trillion dollar industry today. It's expected to grow to 25 trillion by 2030. There's over 1 million jobs in the US that are at risk. 
This is an attack not just on the crypto industry, but on American innovation in the capital markets. And we've got to get the SEC back within its mandate. You know, today, a Coinbase stock taking a hit, but you've got a piece up on CNBC Pro. Sign up today. That basically says, why aren't cryptocurrencies falling on this news? So why aren't they? Yeah, it's interesting. Just as Coinbase shares tanked about 12 percent earlier in the day, you see them rebounding just a little bit after hours. But cryptocurrencies, it was sort of a muted reaction at first. And then slowly they started to climb and climb and kind of uh, they actually Bitcoin itself took back a bunch of the losses uh, from yesterday when the SEC sued Binance. Um, and this is because this is really the shoe that investors were waiting to see drop. Regulation has been such a dark cloud over crypto this entire year. The enforcement actions have come out since about January. And it's really, you know, the low volumes that we've been seeing since April all come back to the regulatory uncertainty. You saw that SEC hit Coinbase with a Wells notice in March. And there's been this sort of legal back and forth between the SEC and Coinbase. So we've known that this was coming. It wasn't a surprise to many people. And now that it has come and we can see what's inside the lawsuit, investors are kind of reacting like this is a good thing. Now, you know, the worst of the worst, which we've been expecting, is kind of behind us. Yeah, you wonder, Perry Ann, I mean, is that point of view that while annoying in the short term, potentially damaging to some of these companies, you know, in the near and medium terms, is there an upside to these lawsuits to finally get some clarity? Or maybe we just have everybody operate in the Bahamas or Hong Kong or UAE. Well, I mean, if there is a silver lining, it certainly is that one. We now see the SEC's cards. These these suits have now been filed and we now see what their arguments are. And there's a number of problems uh, with these lawsuits. There's a number of reasons as why this is not just bad policy, but they're also arbitrary and capricious. And they're exposing the SEC as well as investors to, to risk. And at the you know, to summarize where we are where the chamber is, where our members are, this is the time to fight. Behind the scenes, there are productive conversations that are happening on both sides of the aisle with policymakers in Congress. We're driving and leading a number of those, and there is a huge appetite to get regulatory reform done to rein in what the SEC's actions have been in this space and uh, to make sure that the United States will be a jurisdiction where blockchain technology can be mm. developed, invested, and in, in innovated on. Well, uh, when, this is the time. Perry Ann, when the Digital Chamber of Commerce, I'm sure you guys are at the forefront. You get more info, let us know, put you back on the show. Perry Ann Boring, Tanea McKeel, thank you both. All right, GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen, remember him? He has legions of retail investors following his every move, and a new CNBC documentary gained access to the secretive community to try to find out why they became fascinated with Cohen in the first place and how he has impacted their investments. So Ryan Cohen, I had started to learn about him through the GameStop communities, and I started buying more GameStop because I liked what I had heard. He was a regular guy that became a billionaire. Well, why can't I do that too? He was supposed to be this great businessman who would make GameStop very profitable. He came across that he was on the side of retail investors. I think at the core of the GameStop movement, it was basically stick it to the man. When I was originally a part of these communities, that was a big part of the sentiment. It wasn't just a bunch of people trying to get rich. And that's how I felt at the time. 
For a closer look inside the fanatic following of Ryan Cohen turning into the making of a meme king tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, right here on CNBC. All right, but still to come on this fine program, beef prices are soaring. Just check the price next time you order a steak. We're going to speak to the owner of Mastro's, Del Frisco's, The Palm, Morton's, and many, many more about that, the casino business, and the American consumer. It is this gentleman, the consumer king, our friend Tillman Fertitta, who will join us, join you next on Last Call. All right, time now for your daily RBI. And you know, we've talked a lot lately about the remote work phenomenon, how workers in many big cities are still staying at home. But just how much depends on where you live and what day of the week it is. Look at this data from office occupancy tracker Castle Systems. Of the top 10 metros in America, three of the top four back-to-the-office cities are in Texas. Maybe no surprise, since some of those cities barely shut down during the pandemic. But surprisingly, Chicago is over 60% occupied midweek. So who is not coming back to the office? Well, as much as California, San Francisco just half full on its busiest day. And our friends down there in the nation's capital also aren't coming in much, with D.C. just about barely half full. And those are, by the way, the busiest days. Castle data shows that on Fridays, the number of people actually in an office can plummet. In fact, in Philly, San Jose, San Francisco, and, yeah, D.C., offices are just 25% full on Fridays. Three out of every four office workers is staying home. The national average, not much better, just 28% occupancy. Now, of course, we know many of you probably hate your commutes. Ever been on D.C.'s Beltway at rush hour? We get it. It's brutal. But as much as people may love working from home, you can't help also wonder how long this can go on and how it's ultimately going to keep impacting cities, real estate, and the thousands of small businesses that rely on these workers to survive. It is a huge economic story and only getting bigger as time goes on. Random, but interesting. All right, speaking of restaurants in major cities, many are still struggling with lack of office folks coming in for a night out after work. And it's kind of a double whammy to many of these places because costs like meat continue to go up, especially steaks and beef. Beef alone, up 20% in just three years. Shrinking cattle herds, one big reason. And it may get worse. The Department of Agriculture saying beef production will continue to collapse by, get this, over 2 billion pounds next year. That's a lot of cows. And if that happens, it'd be the biggest single year drop in 40 years. What does this mean for restaurants and prices and dining out? Well, your next guest is at the helm of restaurant giant Landry's. They own a ton of restaurants, you know, Del Frisco's, Morton's, Mastro's, The Chart House, and many Many more. Joining us now is Landry's owner, Tillman Fertitta. Also owns the Golden Nugget Casino chain, the app, the Post Oak Hotel in Houston, by the way, one of the best, if not the best in America, Tillman, and the Houston Rockets, as well as the Montage in Laguna Beach. And that's all the time we have for the interview. I'm kidding. Tillman, it's good to have you back on the program. <laughs> you and I have talked forever about this. Is there any, any sign of any type of inflation, whether it's beef or labor or booze or whatever, starting to moderate or even come down? It is starting to come down just a little bit right now. But you just showed it. If you don't have herds, you're not going to get beef. And, and as we look into the future right now, 
the herd is shrinking and therefore beef prices are not going to come down unless we go into such a pullback that people just aren't out ordering whatsoever. You know, we just heard our, our return to office statistics, and I don't want to get into pandemic arguments because it generates all kinds of just debate on stuff that we're not trying to talk about. But, you know, I've visited you in Houston many times, you know, in the last couple of years and Texas maybe opened up earlier and there were two hour waits at restaurants when things in New York were still closed. You've got your finger, you know, in Vegas and New York and Houston and Beverly Hills and whatever. Is everything kind of back in many places or are you still starting like we just showed in Manhattan on a Friday? It's still weak. Well, it, it, it is weak on a Friday lunch and a Thursday lunch. But don't forget, everybody in the consumer business had the best years they ever had when 21 and 22 rolled around because there was so much stimulus money out there. And so you weren't having the business meetings, but the consumer was going out on their own and spending money. And all that business is now pulled back. And it's going to get worse now when all these people have to start. You're taking millions of people that are in the workforce that are educated that now are going to have to start paying their student loans again. So you're going to continue to see a huge pullback as we go into the fall and uh, companies continue to struggle. And second quarter numbers for consumer companies is not going to be good. And you can just bank that one. I thought you were supposed to be optimistic. I am optimistic, but it has slowed down. How much? Traffic is off in, in restaurants and casinos, three and a half to four percent regionally across the country. I think the strip in Vegas is going to be a little bit stronger because they're getting so many corporate meetings and business conventions. I look for the strip in Vegas to be a little bit of an outlier compared to the regionals around the United States. But your restaurants are still slowing down and things are not going to be as good. That's really interesting because, you know, so much of the official economic data, Tillman, that we get and report on at CNBC is, you know, is a month or two months old. You know, we say, oh, the retail sales numbers for, you know, March were good. You're getting, I know because I've seen your staff, you're getting like hour to hour and daily reports. So what you're saying <laughs> is it's maybe minute by minute knowing you. So we're starting to see things roll over and maybe some of the data that we've got from a month or two ago just may not be as reflective of the real situation today. You're exactly right. Y'all are looking at data that is produced usually a few weeks after the last month. And, and when you look at a trailing 12, the trend is not your friend right now. When it comes to anybody that's in the high-end goods, especially the high-end restaurants, fast casual is still doing okay. Even casual is doing okay. But your expensive restaurants, your expensive goods and your malls and your high-end stores are definitely feeling it right now. And I truly believe it's the stimulus money. There was so much stimulus money out there that people went out and bought objects and meals and things that they normally did not buy. $2.3 trillion in excess household savings at the peak of COVID savings, that according to Goldman Sachs. There's still about 1.1 to 1.2 trillion out there, though, Tillman. So it's, it's not gone. But your point about student loan debt is well taken as well. The average loan repayment, 393 a month, the median 222. Are you factoring in that 
into when you talk to your hotels, your general managers you say, listen, this is probably going to hit us. We know it's coming. Now, what's really interesting is, is that when we sit there and we, we watch everything, the, the hotels are, have not pulled back quite as much as the restaurants. The resort hotels have, but your business hotels in your urban areas that started doing business and are having business meetings, we're getting that now instead of the, the stimulus stayer. But, but, uh, I think as we move on through this summer and looking at second and third quarter numbers, everybody's going to be a little bit surprised. You know, it's so interesting. And by the way, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, obviously, I know you're not a golfer. You don't have the patience to golf. Really, neither do I. Got a huge deal today, partnership, merger, whatever word you want to, want to have it on. And, and <clears> listen, <throat> without going into sort of the tits of the tat of it here, um, as a sports owner, what do you think of this deal slash partnership between PGA and Liv? Do you believe there is some hypocrisy here where the PGA chair was saying basically, you know, d- don't go play for the Saudis because of this and that. And yet and now they, they make a partnership with them. It, it is scary. And it's, it's no different than, you know, a company trying to come in and hire all my executives away and me saying, oh, you shouldn't go to work for this company. They don't do the right thing. They're not a good moral company. They don't have high integrity. They don't do this. And then me going and selling to them 12 months later. So uh, it's a bad look. It kind of right? caught I mean, me it, by it is surprise. A, it's a bad, it's a bad it look. And the PGA... The PGA, I've got, listen, I I deal with Saudis all the time. I've got a lot of friends in Saudi Arabia as well. The PGA Tour shamed these players basically for not, don't go, and, you know, you can't play in most tournaments, and, you know, don't go play over there. And now the PGA is, let's be honest, I mean, taking the money. Well, and it's interesting that it, and they pulled this off and basically took over the PGA in just a 24-month period. And when you start looking at other sports and you sit there and say, oh, my gosh, well, what happened if they uh, just decided to form a basketball league and take the top 10 draft picks every year uh, coming out of uh, our, our draft of only uh, 60 people and, and did it for five years, you would have taken the future generation's best names, you know, out of our league. And then, so what happens? And so I'm really disappointed. I don't have enough facts to say somebody's right or somebody's wrong. But from just what I've seen today, and I've been busy today, uh, I, I think it's disappointing and I don't like where it puts us in the future. Well, maybe they will. Maybe they will build out a basketball league and lure away some of those top prospects. Did you see, <laughs> did you see they lured away the top, one of the best soccer players in the world, French guy? They're paying him three years $643 million to play for a pro team in Saudi Arabia. What do you make of that? What well, do you make of that got, contract? Well, I'll tell you what I, I'll tell you what I make of it. I, I was very interested in buying uh, a soccer team in, in Europe. And when you started looking at who you were competing with, uh, we get up every day because we want to win an NBA championship and everything we do is to set us up for that. But when you're competing against Qatar and, and, and Saudi sovereign funds as well as others, 
Uh, It's kind of why are you doing this to compete for second, third and fourth and fifth place? Even as as rich as you are, that's that's big money over there. You got to admit. By the way, what team did you want to buy? I'm not going there, but we looked at numerous teams and uh, and and it's an issue because you don't want to because you don't want to be relegated. And you can easily be relegated if these sovereign funds continue to get into these leagues. But that's their right. The leagues allowed it. And that's where in the in the U.S., MLB and hockey and NBA and the NFL, we protect ourselves and we look at we want individuals as owners and controllers, and we don't want funds controlling these teams. Why not start a second MLS team in Houston? <laughs> One's enough. We'll leave it there. Now, now I'm in trouble to text you when the show's over. Be like, what team? Tell me. Uh, Tillman Fertitta, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Queens. Thanks, Brian. Queens Good seeing Park you guys. Rangers, Crystal pa- Brighton and Hove Albion. Anyway. On a more serious note, a bombshell report in the Nord Stream pipeline explosion suggests America knew an attack was coming. How could or will Russia respond? All right, there is a bombshell report out today that could have major ramifications for the war in Ukraine. According to documents seen by the Washington Post, the Biden administration received intelligence that Ukraine was planning to blow up the critical Nord Stream pipeline months before the actual bombing occurred. It also says some European officials were aware. Now, right now, this is the only story with the Washington Post. NBC News has not seen these documents or independently verified this information. The White House, CIA, and Office of the Director of National Intelligence have also, probably unsurprisingly, declined to comment on the report. Now, to be clear, that report alleges Ukraine planned an attack. It does not say Ukrainian saboteurs actually went through with it. But of course, we know the pipeline was blown up. And if Russia believes the report and also knows that European leaders and the Biden administration were aware but did not dissuade the bombing, could that escalate an already tense situation? Just last night, Russia may have played a role in blowing up a critical dam in Ukraine. Look at that. Flooding parts of the area and threatening thousands of lives downriver. For more on this, let's bring in Michael McFall. He is the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Ambassador McFall, thanks for joining us. Your take on this Washington Post story. Well, it sounds plausible to me. Um, I think you make a good point that just because we knew that there were plans to do this doesn't mean that they did do it. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. And I don't know, understand why other people are surprised. Uh, after all, this is a war. Uh, This notion that Ukraine is just supposed to fight the Russians inside their territory, but does not have a right to take the war to other assets and other places. I I can't think of many wars in history where those were the rules of engagement. I know that we, the Biden administration, the United States wants to limit our involvement. And I think the president has drawn that line in a very smart way. No, No American soldiers, no American pilots will be involved, but that doesn't give us the power or authority to tell the Ukrainians how to fight this war. No, and listen, I, I have been probably as many much as anybody on television been reporting on the energy story in Europe. I've been over there many times talking about Nord Stream before and after the explosion. I, I think, Ambassador, where, where I came at it as a sort of with an energy brain is the U.S. directly benefits from this. The Nord Stream being blown up increases the flow of natural gas for decades to come, 
to Europe as well. Germany, now I know probably why they were so good at securing <laughs> supply deals uh, so quickly after the explosion. They probably knew something was coming ahead of time. But if you're Putin, you're probably thinking, well, you know, this is sort of commission by omission. Well, I'd say two things. One, it's been fantastic what Europe has done to finally get off of Russian energy exports of oil and gas dependence. Remember, for decades, we've said that can't be done. I was in the government. I worked at the White House when we would talk to our European counterparts in the Obama administration saying, this is not in your long-term strategic interest. And yet, a year from that, uh, from when they, the Russia went in and invaded, they've now done it. And I think this is good for everybody, especially for the United States, like you just said. Second, yes, Putin doesn't like it, but I'm tired of people talking about things that Putin doesn't like. I'm tired of people saying, well, this is going to lead to escalation. This is going to lead to escalation. This is going to lead to escalation. He is doing everything short of using a nuclear weapon, and that's a very serious yeah. thing we need to consider. But short of that, he's already using his most sophisticated missiles to bomb European, uh, I, I, agree, bomb I, agree, European I agree with that, capital. Ambassador. I think I think the I think everybody is obviously rooting for Ukraine in this, you know, unjustified and horrific invasion. But I think we also want to prevent it from becoming a larger, maybe continental war with this dam. Now, the Ukrainians that, you know, blaming Russia, Russia denying it, of course, that's what they do. It puts a nuclear power plant upriver a little bit at risk because they rely on that water and a certain water level to keep the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant running. I mean, there are bigger risks here. Yes, it's very scary. I couldn't agree more. And we need to be careful. We don't know definitively what happened. Uh, I just saw what the defense minister of Ukraine said, and I believe him more than the defense minister of Russia. But we should wait and see. We don't know the full facts. But if it is the fact that the Russians did this, this is a terrorist attack. Russia should be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. And to your point, this is now a terrorist attack that has implications mm -hmm. affecting people well beyond the borders of Ukraine. Ambassador McFall, great perspective as always. Really appreciate it, sir. Thank you very yeah, much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, bye-bye. Well, anytime. Thank you. All right, coming up, talk about lows and highs. Our own Frank Holland at a cannabis dispensary in Vegas where the good times aren't necessarily rolling for everyone, Frank. You know, Brian, not at all, but we're not just at a cannabis dispensary. We're at the biggest cannabis dispensary in the entire world where you can buy edibles, you can buy drinkables, just about anything you want. Planet 13 off the Vegas Strip, and we're looking at a bit of a cannabis conundrum. Sales have never been higher, but the stocks are at all-time lows. We're going to look at the situation and talk to CEOs about just what's going on in the U.S. cannabis market. That and much more on Last Call after the break. Here's a burning question for you. When it comes to the marijuana industry, why is U.S. cannabis down more than 20% year-to-date when cannabis sales are forecast to grow 29% this year? Frank Holland is in Las Vegas with more on sort of this cannabis conundrum, Frank. Yeah, it's absolutely a cannabis conundrum, Brian. Right now, we're at Planet 13, the biggest cannabis dispensary in the world. I just want to show you what's going on. It's a weed wonderland. It's a cannabis carnival. It's a pot playground. You can buy anything you want from all these different strains to edibles to drinkables, you name it. And while this Planet 13 in particular is one of a kind, it's actually a whole new world when it comes to cannabis here in the United States. So currently today, about 240 million Americans, they have access to some form of legal, legal cannabis in one way or the other. And revenues continue to grow, especially in the recreational market. So you may be asking, 
Why are the stocks down? When we talk to U.S. cannabis CEOs, they say currently today, people have more access to the products, the actual weed, than they do the stocks. Cannabis companies can't list on major exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Demand is artificially inhibited due to regulations. Once the regulations open up, whether it means a listing or the fundamental ability for people to buy the stock, whether that's Cole Memo 2.0, safe banking, or various kinds of things from D.C., either executive branch or legislative branch, that could give people the clearance to buy the stock, and we think it could come. So investors, uh, excuse me, people's appetite for cannabis is also changing. We're showing you some data right here. Edibles have really grown in popularity over the last few years. People want all kinds of different cannabis. It's beyond just the cannabis flower. But talking to other CEOs, they say the ability to grow different products and grow their business is being hampered by the IRS. According to the current tax code, cannabis operators, they can't take any of the normal business deductions. Schedule one is the hardest part because we have a thing called 280E. 280E is an additional tax of about 20 to 21 percent that we have to pay to the federal government that no other business in the United States has to pay. So the other issue here is the illegal market. It's estimated to be just about as big, if not bigger, than the legal market. And you have to remember, all these easing of laws and decriminalization, it also helps their business and helps them operate in all these different states as well. Brian, back over to you. Frank Holland out there in Vegas. That place does look pretty impressive, but don't spend too much time there, Frank. You know what I'm saying? I mean, even inside the building, Frank Holland, appreciate it. It's just journalism, Brian. I got to get into the story. It's all journalism. Got a Rocky Mountain high, Joe Walsh. Thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is dead. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.